This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we're going to start a special three-part series on a man who changed the landscape of political protesting, demonstrating that positive change can occur without massive loss of life. He won the Nobel Peace Prize when he was 35 years old, and he was the youngest to ever receive the award. His life became synonymous with civil disobedience, you know, taking it farther than Thoreau ever dreamed possible. He radically and controversially claimed the role of a Christian political resistor was not only the role to resist injustice. This was not enough. You know, to be successful, one has to accompany resistance with love, loving the persecutor. And that's a claim that would be put to the test over and over and for which he would eventually be martyred. On January 20th, 1986, the U.S. federal government proclaimed a national holiday commemorating his life and message. And today, over 955, and that's probably a, a number on the small side, but there are at least 955 major street boulevards and thoroughfares that carry his name not just only in the united states but across the world and if you haven't figured it out yet we are talking about the life literature and the legacy of dr martin luther king jr and specifically we're going to be talking about the iconic letter that really moved the nation from apathy to change and that would be the letter from birmingham jail it was written on April 16, 1963, and famously addressed to my dear fellow clergymen. Yes, and yet so many of us teachers and you know non-students alike, uh, when we hear that name, we don't know a lot about the movement itself. Um, I grew up in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., before moving to Brazil, so I'd heard the name Dr. King all my life. I knew he stood for nonviolence. But I ignorantly thought he literally just walked around preaching, protesting, carrying signs, singing, marching. I had no idea how calculated the entire civil rights movement was. I had no idea the amount of strategy and genius that went into the planning and the execution of one of the most effective nonviolent movements in the world. 
and how many years really it took to make it happen. It looked like, at least from my vantage point, that Dr. Ting just got up one day and started protesting. <laughs> well, you know, I think most people don't, even people of good faith who even try to mimic some of his basic strategies. I mean, it's really difficult to wrap our minds around the complexity involved and, and not to mention the sheer power of of King's uh, personal rhetorical charisma, which is just unmatched at that time. That carried the movement from a few thousand African-American Christian protesters in Montgomery, Alabama, to eventually about 255,000 people uh, of all ethnicities and faith on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963. And um, the changes in legislation and the implementation of laws that had been allowed to be ignored for a century those were a direct result of this movement we're discussing over the next few episodes. Well, I'm excited, and I do want to start with some definitions of some terminology that we hear when it comes to the civil rights movement that those of us who aren't originally from the South may not necessarily be familiar with. So let's start with the example of Jim Crow and Jim Crow laws. What are those? (laughs) (laughs) Wow. You know, Jim Crow wasn't a real person. Um, He was a character that was created by a famous white comedian back in the 1850s. And this white comedian painted his face black with charcoal and called himself Jim Crow. And he did comedy. And of course, that's today we would call blackface. And that's, you know, derogatory and offensive. And But that term later, Jim Crow, that was adopted to refer to the set of laws that went into effect starting in the 1880s. And these laws, of course, uh, were derogatory and offensive. And so the term remains appropriate. And they refer to legislation that specifically targeted African-Americans to keep them from upward social mobility and really fully participating in American life with the rest of the population. And let me remind you um, that all of this occurred after the end of the Civil War and after the Union troops left the South, where they had been forcing Southern cities to integrate uh, against their will under the direction of President Ulysses Grant. That period has been called, or it is called, Reconstruction. And after 1877, Reconstruction ended partly because the North was exhausted from trying to enforce the rights guaranteed by the 14th and 15th Amendments in the Southern states. So the North abandoned the South. And uh, the South went on to remain a third world part of this country for decades to come. And Jim Crow laws, which basically are segregation laws, stayed in effect literally all the way until the success of the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s, which I want to point out is nearly a century after the end of the Civil War. So let me give you an example. Um, In 1891, uh, 25 years after the Civil War, Georgia became the first Southern state to pass a Jim Crow law. Uh, The Georgia legislature passed a law that railroads had to provide equal but separate accommodations for black and white passengers. In other words, the African-Americans would not be allowed to sit with the white Americans. Um, After this first attempt at dividing the races was allowed, uh, there soon were others, and there began to be black and white bathrooms, black and white water fountains, hospitals, schools, and swimming pools and prisons and barber shops and parks and movie theaters, sports arenas, telephone booths, lunch counters, uh, libraries, and even really graveyards. Uh, in his letter, Dr. King refers to these signs as nagging. That, of course, is an understatement. Uh, they were degrading and psychologically damaging and 
racism in the United States during a Jim Crow period was worse than really any other period of history, including today. There was a famous case, uh, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, and that's five years after the first sign went up in Georgia. Uh, that created a legal precedent in the Supreme Court for saying that segregation laws were okay. The, the court said that if the facilities were equal, then it was not illegal for people to be segregated by race. And, you know, this was a blow to African-Americans as well as the railroad industry, actually, which didn't even want to segregate their railroad cars. Um, it was an enormous financial burden beyond being offensive and unnecessary. Uh, they now had to provide two of everything. But Jim Crow laws went on for years. And, of course, the uh, facilities were never equal. But even if they had been, you know, the message was still clear. It was still derogatory. And the entire system, obviously unjust, which caused many advocates of social quality, both African-American as well as white, to continue to mobilize and really to advocate for change. So... During World War II, uh, or at the end of World War II, President Harry Truman is going to desegregate the United States military in so 1947. that means no more of the separation right. in and, the military. And the military is always a, a huge uh, social proving ground for when the government wants to make social changes. They implement them in the military first. So, uh, And that was a huge advance in civil rights. And then Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier in professional sports in 1947 and uh, but it wasn't until 1954 that there would be another landmark ruling of the Supreme Court that would address this issue by basically overturning Plessy versus Ferguson. And in 1954, it's a court case known as Brown versus Topeka Board of Education. And uh, lawyers um, Richard Ellis and Michael Berger successfully argued that things were separate, but the things were not equal. And in fact, the facilities for black children in schools were always inferior you know, in a unanimous court decision, which a unanimous court decision is a big deal, uh, the court agreed, saying that separate learning facilities were, by very definition, unequal, and that this had a detrimental effect on minority children because it is interpreted as a sign of inferiority. And that was a big deal. The legal precedent had now been set, and there was finally justice in the courts. But now, how does that play out in classrooms across the country? Who is going to force almost half the schools in the United States to integrate students of both races? You know, and, and when would they be required to make this happen? I mean, every state in the South, segregation was actually the law. A school couldn't have been integrated even if they had wanted to. I mean, Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, was the first Southern school high school to attempt integration in 1957. So, you know what? The short answer to all that is these changes were not implemented immediately. <laughs> no, I would say they weren't. And Dr. King points this out very clearly in his letter. Uh, he makes the point that entire African nations were being decolonized faster than American students were being allowed to integrate in their local schools. Which is the most amazing comparison <laughs> to make. And, and it is, it's here that Dr. King is, will rise to national recognition. I mean, at the young age of 26, he's newly married, uh, recently moved to accept a job as the pastor of the Dexter Street Baptist Church uh, in the southern town of Montgomery, Alabama. And it would be here that he would meet another seemingly inconspicuous woman, but powerful woman by the name of Rosa Parks. And together they were about to change the world. All right. So let's set this up. Uh, I want to introduce Dr. King's life before he really enters the political scene in 1956. And it's kind of hard, you know, to keep all these dates straight uh, that for those of us who are not 
you know, naturally numbers minded. <laughs> or historians. <laughs> or historians. But, you know, Dr. King's born in 1929. Uh, so he's, and he's a member of the upper middle class African American family in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, one interesting detail is his birth name was Michael. Yeah, uh, that's right. His father later changed his name to Martin Luther. And, you know, the, the story could be perhaps because of a trip that. His father had made to Germany to study the great theologian who really also changed the political landscape of his day across Europe during the Protestant Reformation. Uh, but that's still slightly speculative. Yes. What's well, not speculative is that his father was a very popular Baptist pastor, pastor of a successful and well-established Ebenezer Baptist Church. So King was privileged to have been able to receive a high level of education. Likely, he's one of the most educated men, Southern men of his time from that place. Uh, he attended the very elite Morehouse College there in Atlanta, and then he went to Crozier Theological Seminary in Chester, Pennsylvania, and also attended Boston University for his doctorate. He had many job offers. You know, he could have taught at universities in very prestigious locations. Uh, another thing to point out during his time in Boston was that he met a rising star singing vocalist by the name of Coretta Scott, and he fell in love with her. So he passed up all those ritzy jobs, and they got married in 1955, and he took the pastorate of a church in a much smaller town, Montgomery, Alabama, where he moved with Coretta, his wife, and then they had a baby. <laughs> So Dexter uh, Avenue Baptist Church, by the way, is located in Montgomery, Alabama, which is the capital of Montgomery. And the church is near the state capitol building. So he, his church and his congregation is located near the heart of state government. So having that in context, December 1, 1955, something happens that changes Dr. King's life forever, as well as the history of uh, America and the entire world. A woman by the name of Rosen Parks is arrested for not giving up her seat to a white gentleman on a bus. She had entered the bus through the front door instead of the back door, which was the law, one of those famous Jim Crow laws. Well, I want to point out, this was not an accident. I mean, the practice of forcing women to give up their seats had been going on for years, and several women protested, you know, to no avail. Uh, but for the highly and morally reputable Rosa Parks, it was going to be different. I mean, the national spotlight was heading her way, but it wasn't accidental. I mean, this was a highly intentional and strategic play on the part of the movement. Well, let me go back. To set this up, too, I want to say that Dr. King wasn't a stranger to this idea of being forced to give up your seat to somebody else. He had a personal experience when he was a teenager of being forced to stand up on a bus against his will. When he was in high school, he had won a speaking contest uh, in a town 90 miles outside of Atlanta. He and his teacher had gone there on the bus, and on the way back, uh, he was excited because he had won the contest. Uh, so he is riding back on the bus when a white passenger gets on. The white bus driver orders Dr. King, well, at that time just Little King, and, and his teacher to give up their seats. And the bus driver actually curses them out. King wanted to stay seated in protest, but his teacher told him he needed to obey the law. 
So they stood up in the aisle for the 90-mile drive back home. King later would say that the feeling that he felt that day was the angriest he had ever felt in his entire life, if you can imagine. So he can understand uh, emotionally as well as cognitively what was happening on these buses all over uh, the South and then the city of Montgomery, Alabama. But the question is not how you feel. The question is, what do you do? Later on in Dr. King's life, someone asked him that very question. How do you manage your anger, Dr. King? And I want to quote Dr. King here, and he says this. A destructive passion is harnessed by directing that same passion into constructive channels. And that is what he is about to do. Yes, the very next day after Park's arrest on December 2nd, um, ministers, including a man by the name of Reverend Ralph Abernathy, um, who would be the one to go to jail with Dr. King, they met at King's Church to organize and publicize a bus boycott. Uh, relying in part really on Dr. King's eloquence, they uh, went about mobilizing the African-American community almost in full. And on December 5th, about 90% of Montgomery's African-American citizens stayed off the public buses. Dr. King was also elected as the president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, or the MIA, uh, the organization spearheading the boycott. And according to Rosa Parks, the reason why they chose King to be the president of the MIA, because he was so new to Montgomery. No one knew him. He had no friends, but he also had no enemies. Well... That evening, when Dr. King spoke at Holt Street Baptist Church, this is what he said, among other things, but I like this quote. I want it to be known that we're going to work with grim and bold determination to gain justice on the buses in this city. And we are not wrong. If we are wrong, the Supreme Court of this nation is wrong. If we are wrong, the Constitution of the United States is wrong. If we are wrong, God Almighty is wrong. <laughs> wow. And and what is striking is that when you see what they were demanding, I mean, these demands are not crazy. They're not even unrealistic. They're not even difficult to implement. I mean, they wanted courteous treatment by bus operators, first come, first serve seating on public buses. And they wanted African-American bus drivers to be hired to work the routes that were really in areas that were mostly uh, where African-Americans were living. So the demands were not met, and the boycott is going to go on for 13 months. Now, think about that. Even in the South, that is a lot of walking and a lot of bad weather for a long time. And this came at a huge personal cost to the thousands of African-Americans who were working or studying all over Birmingham, but living across town in this segregated section uh, for African-Americans. So large, complex carpool systems uh, were created of over 300 cars to support the boycotters. And uh, people with cars offered rides to the walkers and um, the city government Resisting going so far as to punish African-American taxi drivers for, for offering rides at reduced rates. And um, 80 leaders of the boycott were jailed under an old law from the 1920s for a conspiracy that interfered with lawful business. Um, King himself was tried, convicted in order to pay $500 or serve 386 days in jail. And King's house was bombed while he was at church and on the day of the bombing, King rushed home to see that Coretta and the baby were okay. And 
You know, this would not be the last big test on his ability to remain nonviolent, but it was an important moment in his public career. You know, so many people were outraged that someone had, in a cowardly fashion, tried to murder the family of their leader, and they showed up on King's porch with weapons ready to defend King and go after the assailant. And King, although, you know, still very personally affected, famously and calmly stood on his front porch and told everyone to go home. The mandate of Jesus was to love their enemies. I don't know how you say something like that after a scare like that. Uh, But when he talks about, you know, loving your enemies in his letter that we're going to read, it's important to know that for him, these are not just words. He lived this idea and practiced it, risking his own life. He put the life of his wife and his children on the line his whole life. He believed so deeply in the life of Jesus Christ and in the power of redemptive love through Jesus Christ that he was willing to put his life on the line. A point I want to make because it is something that I have thought about and he speaks to is what do you do with the anger? Because you can't avoid the inevitable hate that would emerge in your heart after something like that happens to you. I don't care who you are or, or how involved in your religious faith you, you are. The hate and rage and the anger were justifiable and unavoidable. And of course, I'm not the first person to have this question. Dr. King spoke about that many, many times later on during his life. I'm not sure that you know, he had a working theory at age 26 when this happened for the first time. But by the time he's writing books later on in his life, he did have an articulate vision of how you can manage the rage and anger that you inevitably have to feel. For Dr. King, he says anger is actually a part of the process. He says you have the anger, then you can have the forgiveness, then redemption, then love. It came in that order. It's what he believed, and it's what he practiced to the best of his ability, although, and he speaks honestly to this in his biographical work, too, he struggled, struggled with anger his whole life. Understandably. And, the you know, the Montgomery boycott, as well as King's trial, got national coverage. And a man by the name of Glenn Smiley visited Montgomery, and he offered King advice and training on Gandhian techniques of nonviolence. These two men discussed really how to apply Gandhi's techniques to American race relations. King would later say, Christ showed us the way, and Gandhi in India showed it could work. King and his team would combine Gandhi's methods with Christian ethics to create a model for challenging segregation all over the South. Uh, You know, so to follow the chronology here, on June 5th, 1956, remember, Parks was arrested on December 1st, but by the beginning of June, the federal district court ruled that bus segregation was unconstitutional. That's huge, but it's not the last word in the United States because people have a right to appeal uh, up the chain to the next court to see if a different court will overrule the first one. And since this was a possibility, the boycott uh, could not nor did not end until December 20th, 1956, when the case made its way uh, all the way through the appeal process and ended up in the Supreme Court. Uh, And so the decision was not to overturn. So when that was not overturned, then the boycott ended. And the boycott lasted for a total of 381 days, if you can imagine. I know I would be ready to sit down and ride to work again. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, here's a fun note, and I like this. The day after the boycott ended, Ralph Abernethy, Ed Nixon, and Glenn Smiley. Now, remember, Glenn Smiley's white. But these three men got on an integrated bus together for the very first time. How satisfying would that be knowing you, you made that happen? Right. <laughs> you know, and King famously had this to say about the boycott. We came to see that in the long run, it is more honorable to walk in dignity than ride in humiliation. So we decided to substitute tired feet for tired souls and walk the streets of Montgomery. (laughs) You know what's great about that quote is you can already see that metaphorical language that's so obviously a characteristic of Dr. King's speaking and his writing. True. And speaking of writing, um, he wrote up his experiences from Montgomery in a book called Stride to Freedom. And in 1958, he set out on a book tour across the United States. And He wasn't as famously, obviously, as he would eventually become, but he was a well-known figure. Um, And on September 20th, 1958, a 42-year-old, apparently deranged African-American woman plunged a letter opener into his chest and stabbed him. So Dr. King's methods, obviously, were not well-received by a lot of people. (laughs) Yes, on either side. Now, you know, nonviolence is controversial uh, because it's obviously unfair. You know, why do I have to practice nonviolence when the opposing side is not? And it's a fair question. And it's one which King spent his lifetime discussing. But, you know, nonviolence is paradoxical. It doesn't seem like it should work. Really, its power lies in its ability to contrast so sharply with violence that you strip away any pretense that the violence is justified. It's also very slow, and you have to have a tremendous amount of patience and trust and stubbornness. Well, King moved forward, but it was slow, and he was absolutely fed up, speaking of slow, with the slow pace of the federal court system. Remember, the courts mandated that schools would be integrated in 1954, but by 1963, now remember, that's nine years after the famous Brown versus Board of Education uh, decision, only 9% of African-American students were attending integrated schools. So for Dr. King, that was enough. 1963 was going to be the year. 1963 was the 100-year anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And for those who aren't familiar with American history, that's the day that Lincoln pronounced that slaves would no longer be slaves. For Dr. King, Rosa Parks, Fred Abernathy, and the thousands of others, this was it. And they were willing to put their lives on the line. 100 years was enough. And the chosen place for this confrontation of forces would be Birmingham, Alabama. And that was a design. Gary, why Birmingham? It's not a coincidence. This movement was not spontaneous. It did not just blow up. It was planned. And as Julius Caesar would tell you, selecting the location for the confrontation is key to success. And Dr. King applied that rule. Exactly. (laughs) And, you know, Dr. King tells us in his writings, um, the whole thing was highly orchestrated. Birmingham was the largest industrial city in the South, and it had been a symbol of uh, bloodshed in the past when African-American trade unions tried to form there. Because it was an industrial city, by the way, it's called Pittsburgh of the South because they primarily produced steel. 
you know, the financial interests and, and the political interests were intertwined. And Birmingham was one of the most segregated cities in the United States. And the entire city was an expression of Jim Crow from hospitals to schools, you know, to parks and to jobs and to everything. And um, brutality towards African-Americans was an undisputed reality headed up by a man who prided on keeping African-Americans in their place, as he liked to say. His name was Eugene, but this man, the commissioner of public safety, went by the nickname Bull, Mr. Bull Connor. Under his reign, uh, or leadership, depending on how you view his leadership, uh, between 1957 and 1963, there had been 17 unsolved bombings of African-American churches and homes of civil rights leaders. And Bull Connor was so radical that one time a white United States senator visited Birmingham to give a speech, and he entered through the door marked colored, and so Bull Connor had the United States senator arrested. <laughs> I mean, He's committed. Th- I know this guy was ruthless, and he ruled both African Americans and he ruled whites alike with fear. And uh, he was accompanied and supported by a segregationist governor, Governor George Wallace, who's really famous for saying uh, the famous line: "Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever." Well, you know, history doesn't shine favorably on (laughs) comments like that. No, uh, nor on any of these defenders of segregation, uh, of which Bull Connor was one of the most publicly vicious. But I will say, Bull Connor played a very important role in disrupting segregation because he played the part of the villain so well and so predictably that King could plan on it. Uh, He was the perfect foil. and, And after it was all over, John F. Kennedy famously told King at the White House following the signing of the Birmingham Agreement, he said this, Our judgment of Bull Connor should not be too harsh. After all, in his way, he has done a good deal for civil rights legislation this year. So <laughs> Connor was the absolute perfect foil for nonviolent protests. He, he set up the amazing contrast. So uh, President Kennedy means this guy is so terrible, it's obvious to any fool who's right and who's wrong next right. to Bull Connor. <laughs> and that is the genius of the setup, you know, as, as we've mentioned. So uh, after it's all said and done, President Kennedy could say could say that. But in April of uh, 1963, that really wasn't so obvious. And Bull was on a rampage. Uh, he was in control and he was winning. And on the 3rd of April in 1963, segregationist Albert Boutwell became the new mayor of Birmingham. And Mr. Boutwell was a likable person and he was not like Bull Connor. So some people thought he was the better choice and they were even glad that he had won. But in the words of Fred Shuttlesworth, he was nothing but a dignified Bull Connor. Well, you're starting to throw out a lot of names, Bull Connor, uh, Shuttersworth. These are all names that we're going to see over and over again in the letter. So let's introduce Reverend Fred Shuttersworth. Well, that's good. That's a good idea to do that because the civil rights movement is so centrally uh, orbits around King that most people don't know there was a whole host of people involved in this in this. Uh, making this happen. And, you know, Reverend Fred Shuttlesworth was one of the local leaders of the civil rights movement in Alabama. And remember, um, he had been involved in Montgomery. He'd organized uh, an organization called the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights, otherwise known as the uh, ACHR. And now this becomes important because, as we're going to read in a minute, Dr. King is accused of being an outsider 
and meddling into somebody else's business and starting trouble, to which he's going to respond that he was invited to come, and Reverend Shuttlesworth is the one of the local leaders who had invited him. And all this becomes uh, very important in understanding the context of this letter. So at this time, the ACHR was holding weekly meetings in churches all over Birmingham. And at these meetings, they were mobilizing African-Americans to boycott businesses that uh, display Jim Crow signs or refuse to hire African-American workers except as janitorial staff. And uh, as a result, many stores and businesses around town were losing as much as 40 percent of their business Shuttlesworth became a problem for the status quo, and as a result, he had been jailed. His home and his church had both been bombed. And, you know, in the now famous Room 30 of the Gaston Hotel, Abernathy and King, among others, launched what they called Project C, and the goal was to pressure Birmingham businesses to integrate and remove the Jim Crow signs that said white only or colored. And, you know, the intense boycotts and demonstrations were to start on the first week of March, and they would continue all the way till April 14th, which was Easter. And the Easter season is a big season for shopping, especially for clothes. Well, what's interesting to me, and something I think is lost on a lot of us, is they didn't just go around and find angry people and ask them to hold up signs. Instead, they required people who wanted to participate to to participate in workshops and trainings and daily evening meetings. Everything that happened in these weekly and nightly meetings was designed to be very intentional. There were purposes. They would start these meetings by singing old Negro songs, and they called them freedom songs. These songs were adaptations from the Negro spirituals that slaves had sung a hundred years before. The songs were old and inspirational. They transformed these songs of sorrows sung by people's great-grandparents and turned them into battle hymns. Singing together, obviously, is psychologically bonding under any circumstances, but the power of the history of the music, as well as the spirituality of these songs, is difficult for us to really understand. Besides uh, singing and you know the religious bonding, every single volunteer was required to sign a commitment card where they would pledge their body and soul to nonviolence in the face of violence. This was explained in full. There were 10 commandments that they had to follow. The first commandment was that they must daily meditate on the teachings of Jesus Christ. The eighth commandment was to refrain from violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Yes, and the idea was to prepare every person psychologically to expect and withstand abuse. And when they started the march, uh, when they entered a restaurant that was labeled whites only and to do a sit-in or when, when they were arrested, they needed to be prepared to do what they had been trained to do, and that was resist peacefully. It is absolutely counterintuitive to human nature. You know, and on April 6th, they marched orderly two by two without banners and without singing, and Bull Connor, right on cue, emerged and arrested 42 marchers for parading without a permit. And this became the pattern. 
you know, after 10 days between four to 500 people were sitting in jail and Dr. King and uh, Ralph Abernathy decided that on Good Friday they would lead the demonstration and submit to being arrested as they most assuredly would be. They left their church. They walked around with 50 others. They had been denied a permit to march, so they were guilty of parading without a permit. That doesn't even sound bad. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's like spitting your gum on the sidewalk. Yes. Well, uh, of course, that day when Dr. King and Reverend Abernathy began walking down the street in Birmingham, Alabama, many bystanders lined the streets, and the marchers began to sing, and the bystanders joined in the singing from the sidewalks and sometimes burst into applause. And again, on cue... Bull Connor emerges, <laughs> so predictable. I mean, his officers grabbed Dr. King and Reverend Abernathy by the back of their shirts and hauled them off to jail. And Dr. King was held in solitary confinement for over 24 hours, and not even a lawyer was allowed to visit with him. And he was not allowed to telephone his wife. And we are obviously seeing several violations of civil liberties guaranteed by the Bill of Rights. Oh, yes. Uh, and Coretta, his wife, by Monday is you know, stressed out of her mind by these violations. So she places a call to President Kennedy. It wasn't a few minutes after she'd contacted the White House that his brother, Robert Kennedy, who was at the time the Attorney General of the United States, called her back and he promises to intervene. The president also would call her a few hours later. And as they promised, they called the officials in Birmingham and amazingly, after a call from the President of the United States, Dr. King's imprisonment conditions changed <laughs> significantly. Well, but he was in jail for eight days. Uh, and it was during that time that a public letter was written to him and signed by eight of the leading clergymen in Alabama. Again, these men have put their names on the wrong side of history. And this has to be embarrassing at this point. But, oh, well, that's what happens when you write a public letter. Uh, We're going to read this letter because on the surface, it sounds so reasonable. It's a great example of how someone can say something cruel in the nicest way possible. It's accusatory, politely, and it enrages Dr. King. We started the podcast today talking about what do you do when you're enraged, really righteously enraged, and Dr. King knew what to do. He channeled this energy to become a laser-sharp rhetorical monster, and he is uncontainable. We will read the public letter written by these clergymen, and then we'll read Dr. King's response that changed the world. Let me point out that the date of the letter is April 12, 1963. We, the undersigned clergymen, are among those who in January issued an appeal for law and order and common sense in dealing with racial problems in Alabama. We expressed understanding that honest convictions in racial matters could properly be pursued in the courts, but urged the decisions of those courts should be, in the meantime, peacefully obeyed. Since that time, there had been some evidence of increased forbearance and a willingness to face facts. Responsible citizens have undertaken to work on various problems which cause racial friction and unrest. In Birmingham, recent public events have given indication that we all have opportunity for a new constructive and realistic approach to racial problems. However, we are now confronted by a series of demonstrations by some of our Negro citizens directed and led in part by outsiders. We recognize the natural impatience of people who feel that their hopes are slow in being realized, but we are convinced that these demonstrations are unwise and untimely. 
We agree, rather, with certain local Negro leadership which has called for honest and open negotiation of racial issues in our area, and we believe this kind of facing of issues can best be accomplished by citizens of our own metropolitan area, white and Negro meeting with their knowledge and experience of the local situation. All of us need to face that responsibility and find proper channels for its accomplishment. Just as we formally pointed out that hatred and violence have no sanction in our religious and political tradition, we also point out that such actions as incite to hatred and violence, however technically peaceful those actions may be, have not contributed to the resolution of our local problems. We do not believe that these days of new hope are days when extreme measures are justified in Birmingham. We commend the community as a whole and the local news media and law enforcement officials in particular on the calm manner in which these demonstrations have been handled. We urge the public to continue to show restraint should the demonstrations continue and the law enforcement officials to remain calm and continue to protect our city from violence. We further strongly urge our own Negro community to withdraw support from these demonstrations and to unite locally in working peacefully for a better Birmingham. When rights are consistently denied, a cause should be pressed in the courts and in negotiations among local leaders and not in the streets. We appeal to both our white and Negro citizenry to observe the principles of law and order and common sense. <laughs> well, uh, we are going to highlight a lot of what they say in the letter, but let's see, what are they saying? What are their main points? First of all, they're accusing Dr. King of being an outsider, and he's come from the outside to our you know, part of the world, and he wants to agitate our people. They do acknowledge why, you know, the African-American community might feel impatient, but they're encouraging them to be calm and let the system work it out. Don't incite unrest, just the courts. <laughs> you know, they also go so far as to actually commend Bull Connor and the police force, uh, you know, and, and this is a man whose family's been targeted to be murdered and arrested unfairly. Exactly. That's why I'm saying, how do you not get angry when you read something like that? And, and before we read his response, though, I do think we should highlight the names of who signed it. So I'll read those. There is C.C.J. Carpenter. He's the Bishop of Alabama. Joseph Durick, Auxiliary Bishop of the Diocese of Mobile, Birmingham. Of Mobile, Birmingham. Rabbi Hilton Grafman of the Temple Emmanuel L. in Birmingham. Bishop Paul Hardin of the Methodist Church. Bishop Harmon, North, Bishop of the North Alabama Conference of the Methodist Church. George Murray, the Bishop of uh, the Episcopal Diocese of Alabama. Edward Ramesage, moderator of the Alabama Presbyterian Church. Earl Stylings, the pastor of First Baptist Church of Birmingham, Alabama. When Dr. King responds to these ministers, which we will notice in a minute, he makes it a point to cite theologians from each of the specific religious traditions that have attacked him. And may I point out that when he cites these theologians by name, he does so and what they said from memory. He's in a jail cell. Next week, we're going to analyze and discuss how Dr. King will systematically demolish these specious arguments and challenge on principles of Judeo-Christian faith the inconsistencies of the words and the lives of his 
dear fellow clergymen. <laughs> On that note, we're going to end the day by quoting paragraph one of Dr. King's response in letter from Birmingham Jail. While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should give the reason for my being in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by the argument of outsiders coming in. I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliate organizations all across the South. Several months ago, our local affiliate here in Birmingham invited us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessarily. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promises. So I'm here, along with several members of my staff, because I have basic organizational ties here. Beyond this, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the 8th century prophets left their little villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the apostle Paul left his little village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. And you're going to see this classic uh, ability of Dr. King to uh, engage people where they are. Now, these are ministers, and most of them, except for the rabbi, are Christian ministers. So they're well-versed in Bible. And he's making a comparison, like Paul. Now, for those of us uh, who are not ministers, you may not know that the Apostle Paul wrote almost all all of his letters to the church from jail where he had been prisoned unjustly. So when Dr. King says, like Paul, there's a there's an edge there. <laughs> yeah, there's a historical context. And I would like to point out, he's going to quote theologians in the Catholic tradition, the Jewish tradition, and the Protestant tradition. So he's going to range the whole field here. All right, well, next episode... We're going to see what else he has to say. Okay, and we have a lot to look forward to. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this introductory discussion on the background of this important piece of American literature and history. And as always, thank you for listening. If you feel so inspired, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. Connect with us on social media, you know, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, you know, all the usual suspects. Also, if you're an educator, check out our instructional materials on our website at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Peace out. Thank you.